The Supreme Court intervenes in the ghost gun case, plus an interview with gun rights lawyer Alan Beck on his recent wins against Hawaii's strict gun laws. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now if you want to check out the latest in what's happening with guns in America. This week, we're going to be discussing several rulings against Hawaii's strict gun laws with the lawyer, the gun rights lawyer, who's responsible for having them blocked or tossed. Uh, that is Alan Beck. Welcome back to the show, Alan. We've had, had you on a, a while back to talk about some of your successes with stun gun laws across the country. And now uh, there's sort of another theme or pattern that we see in some of your litigation here. And this one is specifically focusing on Hawaii's laws. Uh, yes. Uh, thanks for uh, having me, Steve. Um, the um yeah, Reese today, uh, a uh, judge, um, well, I'm sorry, a couple days ago, uh, I prevailed at the Ninth Circuit uh, on a, a butterfly knife case, and the uh, Ninth Circuit uh, yep. found that uh, knives of general matter are constitutionally protected, and specifically Hawaii's ban on uh, butterfly knives is uh, unconstitutional. Um, we're, yep. uh, and then what, one day later, you had another ruling? Yes. Sir. In a separate case? Uh, and then the next uh, day, um, literally the next day, we uh, uh, were granted a temporary restraining order against several aspects of Hawaii law uh, regarding um, the uh, census of places uh, ban uh, on carry. And that's essentially what Hawaii had done mm. is uh, after the Bruin decision where they were required to uh, issue permits. And um, after Bruin, I had a case, uh, Young v. Hawaii, and um, that uh, yep. sort of put the... This uh, is another Hawaii case that you, yes. that and, you were involved with uh, about open carry, right? Uh, yes. Um, and uh, well, it, was, it was actually just about uh, some form of carry. They, they completely banned carry over there. Right. And uh, that uh, hmm. sparked uh, uh, them to uh, need to uh, pass uh, what they call uh, SB 1230, uh, and um, that uh, banned um, carry in virtually the entire state. Uh, they really mimicked the um, bans that have been passed in New York, New Jersey, and uh, Maryland, and are being proposed in California and Massachusetts. Uh, and in that um, sense, uh, they were um, um, they um, banned. Um, they put in something called a default rule where a business has to affirmably put up a sign or otherwise give consent to allow a person to carry. Um, and then they banned, simply banned carry, didn't even give businesses the option in many other types of businesses. And um, on top of that, uh, they banned carry in uh, parks and uh, beaches, along with government parking lots, all, all sorts of places. And we sued- We have banks and yes. restaurants as well. Right. Yes. And uh, we sued in um, the county of Maui. Um, and that comprise is um, uh, it's technically five islands, but there's only three populated islands. The other two are just very small. And of the three populated islands, that's uh, Maui um, and um, Molokai. And um, uh, the other one starts with a K. I can't pronounce it. Oh, Lanai. I'm sorry. Lanai. Those are the three. Um, um, 96.4% of the county of Maui is they ban carrying under SB 1230, under Hawaii law. Now, under these sensitive, they, they basically said that 96% of the, the county of Maui was a sensitive place uh, of one sort or another. Is that what you're yes, saying? Sir. Um, and we, we went through uh, uh, the various publicly available uh, county. Uh, maps, uh, this all just, uh, and just extrapolate from that off, uh, all, the, uh, we figured out how many businesses were, there were, um, uh, all the different parks and beaches, et cetera, it worked out to be 96.4%. Yeah. There's a little bit of a standard deviation there because we didn't know 
exactly the size of a road, for example. You know, so we use the average for roads. So, I mean, I think maybe say roughly 96%. I mean, that can't be. You cannot say, the Supreme Court cannot say they have a right to carry a firearm and then for a state to ban carry in roughly 96% of uh, the uh, publicly accessible state outside the home. I mean, that's that just breaks, um, that doesn't pass spell test. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, um, I mean, like, I think there's a lot of people who would uh, uh, who may agree with you on that. But at the same time, there was uh, a recent ruling actually out of Montgomery County, Maryland, up near where where I live. Uh, I'm in Virginia and northern Virginia. And the judge in that case, you know, found that their sensitive places restrictions were OK, even though that county was almost entirely blocked off from legal carry, even if you have a permit just like Maui, but your judge, uh, in your case, who, by the way, was, uh, this is an Obama appointee, correct? Yes. Uh, judge Leslie Kobayashi. Mm-hmm. And she found the opposite, right? She, she came to the opposite conclusion of the judge in the Montgomery County case, even though they're, they're both appointed by Obama, uh, is, is my understanding, if I'm remembering this correctly. And you've managed to convince, uh, your judge that, um, yeah, this 96% or these sweeping gun-free zones uh, don't comport with the Second Amendment, essentially. What what was it essentially in that reason? Because she does talk about the this recent ruling in Montgomery County, but disagrees with it, comes to a different conclusion. Uh, what was her logic laid out there? Well, um, just as um, an aside, you know, I, I'm, I'm saying 96% as – for, for uh, just to illustrate the point of how uh, harsh it is, I, I don't want any of the viewers to think that somehow that's somehow a magic number. I mean, this could be fifty sure. percent, right? But uh, uh, that's yeah. Uh, but it's it's in line with what a lot of these other yes. uh, jurisdictions that have passed this this rule you're talking about, the default rule or the vampire yes. rule, some people call it, where they've switched the the understanding that most basically everywhere has always had about gun carry, which is that it's uh, all right inside of publicly accessible private property. So a storefront or a restaurant or something like that, unless the owner posts a sign saying that it's, you know, you're not allowed to carry a gun. Uh, they, they flip that assumption around so that now all publicly accessible private property is off limits to gun carry unless the owner posts a sign saying you can carry, which obviously has this huge effect that you're describing with these percentages, right? That yes, most places become off limits. Um, and, I think in New York, they, the governor described it as uh, when she was asked where it would be legal to carry, she said some roads. And it sounds like that's basically the same yes, uh, situation that you ran into. Effectively, roads and sidewalks are where yeah. you can carry in uh, uh, the state of Hawaii. And, you know, uh, what our judge did is simply apply uh, precedent. I mean, uh, and that's uh, something that the Maryland court did not do. Under Bruin, the burden is on the government. Once once you have said you want to engage in protected conduct, in this case, carry a gun, the um, Supreme Court was very clear. The burden is on the government to affirmatively prove that they have, a, that there's a historical tradition of, um, uh, banning um, a carry in these locations. Or, and that um, bottom line is just simply wasn't done by the state of Hawaii. And the reason they couldn't do it was because there simply isn't any historical tradition of banning carry, say, in a beach um, or a park. Um, you know, and uh, we showed, uh, the judge uh, acknowledged that uh, I produced evidence that banks have been around since uh, the time of the founding. I mean, there have been banks for thousands of years. I mean, at the, uh, at the founding era, I mean, there were banks in at least New York and um, Massachusetts, several other states, you know, uh, had uh, banks and uh, there were no restrictions by the government. Now, there may have been restrictions by the bank itself. That's a whole different kettle of worms. And um, the uh, state of Hawaii uh, attempted to simply rely on uh, uh laws that uh, restricted carry in markets and fairs. But here's the interesting thing. Right. They said that was somehow similar to banks. Yes. But 
these laws, I looked at these laws, and it turned out that they didn't actually ban carry in markets and fairs, even. Their only true supports for banks were bans on carry in a threatening manner. And uh, I, I don't think that they uh, won any favor there by um, relying upon uh, laws. And honestly, I mean, I think misrepresenting uh, the laws initially until I pointed out and looked it up myself. Um, but uh, I mean, that's all that happened, though, is uh, our judge faithfully applied precedent. And um, that's in line with uh, what's been done by uh, well, the court in Antioch. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. And, uh, one of the more interesting provisions, though, in this ruling to me, uh, because I think it extends well beyond Hawaii itself, right? Uh, you know, some of these things extend to the other states that have tried to pass these post-Bruin response bills that that have these sort of novel provisions like you're describing there, the default swap provision where um, uh, or, you know, banning guns in banks or at all sorts of different venues. Um, but there was one provision in this bill that I think is fairly popular in a lot of states, um, which is uh, restaurants, restaurants that serve alcohol. You know, states handle this differently, but it's not uncommon for them to just ban you from carrying in uh, at all in an establishment that sells alcohol. Some of them do like though if it's more than 50 percent of their business comes from selling alcohol, they try to make you know essentially bars and taverns off limits while other restaurants that serve alcohol are are allowed for carry. Um, you know, but this is something that's not as much of an outlier as some of these other provisions. And yet the judge found that there wasn't historical support for that. Can you tell uh, walk us through that section of the ruling? Yeah, um, I mean, something that's important here is it's not just uh, restaurants and bars that serve alcohol, it's for parking lots. And uh, a, a big problem with this law is, uh, you know, my clients like to go to uh, Maui Mall. Uh, Maui Mall has, um, uh, you know, dozens of different uh, businesses. Uh, one of them is, um, you know, uh, O'Reilly Auto Parts place, one of my clients frequent. Uh, he is not allowed to carry when he goes to O'Reilly's because there's two restaurants in Maui Mall that share a parking lot without O'Reilly that uh, do not allow. Um, and uh, because of that, um, you know, he can't care, carry uh, in any of these businesses. I mean, that doesn't make sense. But I mean, uh, uh, ultimately, though, I mean, to get to the underlining point that you're asking about is whether or not there, there may be historical tradition of making people who are actually drunk, that have been drinking, not allowing them to carry. But at the colonial era, there was absolutely no laws that said you can't go to a restaurant where that happens to have alcohol and uh, um, carry a firearm as long as you're not drinking. And, uh, or at least, uh, well, and uh, the reality here is um, the state wasn't able to produce any evidence, you know, uh, that uh, uh, either at the founding or at the Reconstruction time, uh, a person couldn't get himself a, a steak at the local pub, eat it while carrying. And that's what they were required to do. So while it may be that there are more laws impacted because in the 20th uh, the 21st century, it's become a little more of a tradition to uh, more states have allowed uh, these types of bans. It doesn't impact the analysis. So what we look at is mm -hmm. the uh, founding era. But it has implications yeah. for those other states, potentially. Oh, sure. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, I mean, they did bring up a couple of laws, right, in this section. They pointed to uh, some militia laws from the founding era that talked oh, about sure. not, not allowing... Um, People who are on duty uh, carrying their firearms for the militia uh, to basically to drink while they were on duty, right? That was essentially right. the and, context of these laws. And that's a tactic that was directly rejected by a different judge in Hawaii in one of my other cases. Hmm. I had a case but, where the only um, uh, the, the only historical analogs they uh, were able to produce, and this was a pre-Bruin case. Uh, it's uh, they were um, they, they tried to rely on militia laws for inspection of militia arms 
to justify uh, forcing the Hawaiian people to bring their firearms to this police station to have them inspected prior to registering them. And, uh, you know, even prior to Bruin, um, Judge Seabright, uh, uh, who, you know, one of the other judges in Hawaii, uh, said, um, look, that's just simply not relevantly similar. I mean, this is for, these are laws to maintain military discipline. That has nothing to do with uh, uh, a person in civilian life uh, being engaged in, um, you know, uh, uh, what he can do with his private firearms. And so right. the court relying upon uh, that rationale, just simply the, or their own uh, logic uh, said, you know, I mean, what is, um, what a person does while, while they're in the military have anything to do with uh, what they're doing uh, in their uh, private life. But also, even if uh, even if the you take these militia laws about not drinking while carrying a firearm to be a historical tradition of banning that practice, that's obviously still not the same as just going to a restaurant that happens to serve alcohol Absolutely. while you're carrying, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's um, and also, I mean, this is a, a very large number as a practical matter. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to just simply randomly go get lunch at a place in, uh, uh, you know, that doesn't serve alcohol. I mean, there's a lot of right. places to serve beer and wine, you know, that mm -hmm. uh, it's not a big part. Uh, you know, it's, this is not, um, you know, the state and I'm sure a lot of the anti-gun groups want to paint this as uh, bans on um carry you know some type of nightclub you know where the whole purpose you know uh, where just alcohol is just uh the purpose of going there uh mm -hmm. you know there's um uh you know there's plenty of just simply normal diners that you'd be surprised i mean they have beer in the back if uh, you want to order from it you know uh, yeah so, most restaurants it, serve yeah. alcohol and this form. impacts my clients just day-to-day -day life uh that's yeah. something i made very important with this judge it's not about a special occasion that you're going to some fancy restaurant uh, and getting expensive, uh, you know, uh, where expensive wine is being served. This is them on their lunch break. Right. You know, this is uh, uh, just everything. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and look, I think that uh, it's, it sure seems like this ruling could have uh, some influence over these post Bruin laws in particular in New York and New Jersey, Maryland. Uh, we're soon to get one in California, probably Massachusetts as well. Um, and, and so it'll probably have in, some influence in, in those cases that are stemming from those new laws. But I think this provision probably has some implications, you know, even further afoot than that, right? Because uh, there are far more states that try to regulate carrying in restaurants that serve alcohol than there are states that are passing these sort of broom response bills. But, um, you know, the other interesting thing to me about the, that case is that, you know, you're taking these cases in an area that's traditionally been very unfriendly, you know, unfriendly towards Second Amendment challenges of, of gun laws, the Ninth Circuit, Hawaii in particular. Uh, these are not places that are um, that, that you're that you've seen a lot of wins uh, over the last 20, 30 years until very recently. And, and so, you know, now you're you're sort of racking up some of these wins, and including at the appellate level now. This night, this other case that you mentioned briefly at the beginning, there, it was a Ninth Circuit panel. Um, they found that butterfly knives, right? The sort of uh, hard to describe them. They're kind of like nunchuck of knives, I guess. People, if you've ever seen like a, uh, I don't know, a '50s gangster movie, you've seen somebody like. Uh, I don't know if they're in uh, West Side Story or not, but it's that's the kind of movie you would see a butterfly knife in. Um, but you know, essentially, they're the, they've got the two handles and the knife is in the middle. Um, but it's something that was banned in Hawaii outright. You couldn't possess these even. Um, and you, this panel, found in favor of your clients, uh, coming to the decision essentially that the Second Amendment does protect these knives. Uh, can you just explain the maybe some of the logic there, what how they came to that conclusion? Well, I think what's important is that we remember that the Second Amendment protects a right to keep and bear arms, not firearms. And that's a, a misnomer that's 
made by a lot of people. And so we have to look at what is an arm. And since we're talking about constitutional law here, we have to look at what the definition of an arm was at the time the constitutional amendment was passed. Here, because we're talking about one of the Bill of Rights, a, one of the ones that was drafted in 1791, we look at 1791. And uh, as the Heller Court um, says, um, by assigning to several dic dictionaries that uh, uh, from the, uh, the founding era, uh, one of them being uh, uh, Timothy Cunningham's uh, dictionary, uh, an arm is uh, anything that you uh, take in your hands to uh, strike at another or uh, put uh, on your body to defend yourself. Uh, the last part I was paraphrasing, but... Uh, and so what that means is that an arm is any type of weapon that you yourself can carry upon your person and uh, use to attack another person uh, or defend or body armor that you can wear upon yourself. So not, um, you know, some type of a wall that you can construct, you know, but something that you individually can uh, wear. And well, Butterfly knives fall uh, safely within that definition of uh, uh, what an arm is, uh, because like knives, like any knife, you can pick one up and use it to defend yourself or to attack a person with. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in uh, Heller and the Bruton decision, in dicta, mind you, uh, knives are used as an example of an arm. And as a more practical matter, uh, knives at the founding were part of the required arms used uh, that you had to bring, you had to show up with muster with. Uh, not butterfly knives, uh, typically bayonets, uh, but uh, the point remains that uh, knives are part of the traditional complement. So this is not uh, a um, really a stretch to say that a knife with two handles rather than one is uh, protected by the Second Amendment. Um, and that essentially right. was it's kind of it's very similar it was just very, it's very similar to sort of the argument that you'd made in those a lot of those stun gun cases yes right? absolutely because stun guns aren't firearms obviously yes uh, but they're portable uh, man portable weapons that we use to defend themselves and that's the first step mm -hmm. now is it an arm yeah so you got you got to the point where you're showing that this is covered by the second, this this is covered by the text, right? These are arms. Yes. And so you still had the historical analysis step. Yes. Right? The, and was, that's what, is there any tradition of regulating these? And so what was the outcome of that? And uh, during the colonial era, uh, there was absolutely no uh, tradition of regulating any knife. Um, that And uh, during the Reconstruction period, uh, from sort of about the 1830s, towards Reconstruction, there were some uh, restrictions on the carry of uh, something called mm. uh, the, uh, well, a Bowie knife. Um, but yeah, Bowie knife. typically these were just concealed carry bans and uh, uh, just one or two places actually banned their carry. And uh, the state of Hawaii attempted to analogize to um, the Bowie knife. Well, first, there weren't enough restrictions uh, according to the court. Two, there were no bans on possession. And three, this is uh, the butterfly knife is much more like a pocket knife, and there's never been any restrictions whatsoever on pocket knives than a uh, Bowie knife. And uh, so the court found the state did not uh, do an adequate job to um, find a, um, to um, uh, justify its uh, ban with a historical analysis. And, uh, you and, know, I, and I think uh, some – go ahead. Well, I mean, there are a couple points, just sort of practical points here, and that doesn't necessarily go into the post-Bruin legal analysis, but I filed this case in 2019 before Bruin. So I, I have a wealth of uh, public policy uh, information as part of the trial court record and uh, as part of the pre-Bruin briefing on appeal. And – one, um, I had a, uh, an expert who is a uh, Filipino uh, knife fighting expert named Burton Richardson, who lives on Oahu. He uh, did a demonstration with a variety of different knives. 
Butterfly knives open the slowest of all the, the folding knives, uh, simply because there's more moving parts. The reason they have all these parts, they have split handles, they want a safer knife. So if you, you, know, you fall out of a tree, you know, while you use this utility knife, the knife doesn't somehow like spring open and stab you on accident. Uh, but a as a result of that mechanism, you um, uh, cannot, um, you know, it uh, takes a while, you know, it takes not a lot of time, but a couple seconds to open rather than, you know, half a second. Um, and um, it it's, you know, there's- but it's um, fun to open them. That's sort of yeah, where Hollywood, exactly. these made them famous because they're flashy. You open them by- Flick him around like a like a nunchuck or something. Yeah, it's just simply a ridiculous um, ban. But I mean, uh, just simply as a matter of public policy, the, uh, the state of Hawaii was not able to really justify its ban. The only thing you could say was that there were criminals caught with these bans. I took a look at what they uh, meant by this. Um, well, and. I decided to do a deep dive into the, the arrests with uh, butterfly knives. And uh, for the most part, not uh, um, all, but uh, for the most part, the number one thing that I could find was delinquent high school students. They're truant. The police catch them. Maybe they're smoking a joint, something like that. And they happen to have a butterfly knife on them. And they're uh, charged with that as well. They, um, and so the state of Hawaii is trying to say these so are not weapons. charged with an actual violent crime. Correct. These are crime. The state of Hawaii's position was these are weapons that are not typically used for lawful purposes because here's evidence of criminals being caught with them. Therefore, this is a weapon that's used for criminal purposes. But one, even if there's a hundred rests, if the normal use is for um, non criminal purpose. And the, these weapons are used all across the world, both for self-defense, martial arts training. It, uh, you know, um, a handful of rests not cancel out. Two, as I pointed out, it's not, you know, it's ridiculous to say a couple high school students uh, uh, taking six period off, having a ticket for being truant. And then it turns out they've got a butterfly knife on them. Uh, that doesn't um, correlate with the butterfly knife being uh, particularly dangerous. It just happens to be that this is a, a traditional a Polynesian Filipino weapon. There happens to be a very large Filipino po population in Hawaii. Um, so the uh, Ninth Circuit addressed this and uh, just said, well, all crime, all weapons are associated with crime. Somehow, handguns, certainly. I mean, criminals simply use weapons to commit crime. That doesn't nullify yep. sure. a uh, weapon's constitutional protection. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it kind of sounds like perhaps uh, this butterfly knife ban was was maybe just like a low hanging fruit of uh, these these types of hardware bans that you could challenge um, because it's there's really not a very credible argument, even on the practical side of why this should be banned. Um, uh, but I, I, I'm sure people I'm sure some people are wondering, all right, doesn't, you know, knife news, that's. That's interesting. It's just Second Amendment related, but uh, does this tie back to something people are even more interested in? Things like the Sullivan's ban. It seems like this precedent set by this panel does uh, imply a lot for other types of hardware bans because uh, the same basic analysis is going to be done, presumably, in uh, an assault weapons ban case or, or something of that nature, right? Yes, I mean, uh, it is true that uh, a lot of the underlying logic is going to be applicable to any type of hardware analysis in a lawsuit. And uh, right now, uh, Judge uh, Roger Benitez has a case um, called uh, Miller v. Bonta, uh, and he also has Duncan v. Bonta. Miller deals with uh, California's assault weapons ban, and Duncan deals with uh, California's ban on magazines. I have a magazine case in Hawaii that's uh, behind the Duncan case called uh, Abbott v. Lopez. And this uh, lawsuit is going to uh, directly implicate the logic here. Um, but I, I, I would stress, though, that um, there's um, 
a lot of space between a, a butterfly knife and a um, um, AR-15. I mean, I'm sure the state of California is sure. getting extremely creative. So I don't want to say it's dispositive, but certainly this ruling assists in, uh, you know, it sets a foundation of what the courts have to do. And that's something that wasn't... Um, there- uh, it was just yeah, something wasn't, wasn't there before. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, but yeah, you're right that obviously butterfly knives and AR-15s are pretty far apart uh, in practice in real world and both popularity and use. But uh, at the same time, the Bruin analysis is supposed to be the same for both no, of these you, things. Yeah, no, you're right. I, and, think, uh, I think they're probably going to have to rely on a lot of the same laws that they brought no, up in yeah. your case. Uh, they will. I mean, a lot of this to is defend themselves. Yeah, a lot of this is going to be very similar. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the history, the hist- it's going to be the same history, and they're going to have to deal with the same precedent. I mean, it's uh, certainly a big push forward for the Second Amendment. In fact, uh, uh, the attorney um, who's doing the Illinois assault weapons case, who also is one of the attorneys that worked on uh, the Broom case, um, is on. Uh, named Erin uh, Murphy, and she has already filed a uh, notice, up, uh, a letter, a correspondence with the court to update the, to update the court about new cases. And she relies specifically on the Teeter case, this butterfly knife case, and demonstrates that the legal reasoning is the exact same. And if this court applies the Ninth Circuit's legal reasoning, Seventh Circuit applies the Ninth Circuit's legal reasoning, then it should come to the same result in her challenge to... Um, the um, um, assault weapons ban in Illinois. Hmm. Yeah, so we'll have to watch for exactly how this ruling plays out in other courts, because I think it's going to have a significant impact. But you actually have another case that you just filed in Hawaii. So uh, tell us about that. This one deals with some very specific and novel requirements when uh, applying for a concealed carry permit. Is that right? Yeah, so... uh, one of my clients in the butterfly knife case, um, James Grell, um, lives on the Big Island. And uh, after um, uh, the county of Hawaii began uh, issuing permits, they, he uh, wanted to get one. So he uh, goes to the uh, Big Island, uh, the county of Hawaii Police Department and uh, starts the application process. He is asked to sign a waiver which where he waives his attorney-client privilege, his medical doctor privilege, his um, um, priest privilege, his spousal privilege, um, you know, all his confidentiality. And then there's just simply a catch-all at the end, about half a dozen of these, and uh, any other privileges that uh, he may have. So that means, and this is all... Yeah. So, so I want to be clear. Steve. I'm, I'm very confused. Like they're they're saying that he has to waive, like even the privilege of talking to his lawyer. Like he'd have to share everything that he's ever told his yes. lawyer, or his spouse, or his priest no, in his order attorney. to get this permit. No, no. His t- attorney would need to. Not not just um, oh. uh, him. His attorney. They could take in his, um, and let me be uh, clear, this waiver form, look, I mean, this may not be the intent, but this waiver form is very clear. It's a complete waiver of attorney-client privilege, right? A complete waiver of um, a priest, a petitioner um, privilege. So let's just say um, you have a business attorney, completely unrelated to you know, uh, your eligibility to own a firearm. This gives the uh, uh, the um, county of Hawaii the right to go into your business attorney's office and let's just say um, you have some trade secrets at the reload. They go grab all the trade secrets that uh, your attorney has for safekeeping. Take it. And here's the best part, Stephen. Then later on in this waiver, it says, I kid you not, and you waive your right to sue the county of Hawaii or any of its uh, subdivisions, like the police department, if it releases your information 
So now uh, I'm dead. Which is a real risk as we saw in California. Yeah. Uh, So uh, let's just say, uh, yeah, there's no, by the way, I mean, it actually doesn't say negligently. I mean, you can just simply have someone that doesn't like you over there uh, release your information. But let's just say now, uh, you know, uh, you are now a Hawaii resident, Stephen. You want to, uh, you still own the reload. You want to go get yourself a uh, CCW. They go to your attorney's office, grab all your business files for whatever reason. They want to do a real deep dive. Uh, the law enforcement officer takes the box to, um, while he's having lunch, he leaves it there. Someone from whatever your rival organization is picks up the box, uh, publishes all your information online, uses it to destroy your business. You have no cause of action against the uh, county of Hawaii. You've waived any right against the county of Hawaii. You, your doctor, you can have something incredibly traumatic that happened to you in your life, and they accidentally release that. Um, on uh, something incredibly embarrassing. Maybe you're dying of cancer. You don't want the world to know. You know? Um, and if they release that, you cannot sue the county. So not only is this a huge violation of your privacy, just simply to allow a lot but even, of... even without the releasing stuff, yeah, I mean, even, even, even if you ignore the possibility that it could be released, I mean, this is all st- it's like stuff they don't... Why do the police need this information? Why? How do they... Figure they have a right to it. I oh, guess you're absolutely question, right, but Steve. I suppose that's what the lawsuit's about, right? Well, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the um, uh, release of liability is icing on the cake. I want to be real clear. I mean, there is absolutely no right mm-hmm. um, to for the uh, police to um, go um, looking through, you know, um, your therapy records, your um, your what you tell your priest, what you tell your wife. You know, um, uh, when you waive your spouse privilege, just means they can compel your wife to come testify against you if they want. I mean, this is a just a massive invasion of privacy. Um, and, uh, you know, it's um, so what, not only, what grounds are you suing on, by the way? Is this so Second Amendment grounds or what are you, what are you we're suing, suing on? on three separate grounds? One, we are suing under the Second Amendment and just like this um, impediment to your right to carry. And uh, two, we're suing under the 14th Amendment right to privacy. And the courts have made it very clear. You have a fundamental right uh, to privacy in your medical records and other intimate things, including you know, the constitutional right to attorney client privilege. Um, and then um, we're suing under the Hawaii Constitution. And the Hawaii Constitution actually says the government has an affirmative duty to uh, maintain privacy, which, um, you know, uh, Hawaii government's uh, subdivisions, like the counties are not supposed to, uh, they're tr- supposed to minimize um, um, anything uh, that uh, hurts your privacy rights. And uh, so we've got these three different uh, provisions we're suing over. I'm very confident we're going to win on this because yeah, this is just egregious. I mean, it's something that honestly just... Uh, bothers me that uh, um, they think that, um, you know, you have a right in this country, not just um, um, for a a whole host of reasons to have an attorney, be able to say what you want to your attorney in private. You know, uh, criminal defendants, imagine our system of justice, if uh, you couldn't tell your criminal defense lawyer, um, what you wanted to say. I mean, that would just simply uh, just uh, our whole that puts our whole system of justice uh, on its head. And uh, yeah, it's something that needs to be um, uh, stopped at the beginning, you know. And uh, so uh, I filed a preliminary injunction, uh, and uh, the county uh, has an opportunity to respond to that in a few weeks. So I'm very interested to see what the county uh, uh, says in response to this lawsuit. All right. So we will we will absolutely keep on top of that one and see where it heads from here. I'm very interested in 
seeing what the outcome ends up being. But uh, one last thing before we go over to our news segment. Uh, obviously, there was a terrible disaster in Hawaii with these wildfires, especially on Maui, which which is actually the where a number of your clients in uh, in the sensitive places suit live. So, are, are you able to tell us if they're okay or have they? Uh, you know, gotten gotten through the fires, as far as you know. Uh, they're all okay, uh, but uh, you know, there's uh, cell phone service is extremely spotty. Uh, the power's out. Uh, I mean, the, no one in Maui is having a good time of it right now. I, I have they have been able to uh, uh, briefly call yeah. me uh, or otherwise contact me, so I do know they're okay. That's good. That's really good to hear. And and if people want to. Uh, you know, help support the folks who have been affected by that wildfire. I think they should, you know, you can check out the Red Cross and other uh, registered charities that are, that are working to get relief uh, out there because it's, it's one of the worst national or the natural disasters in Hawaii in a long time, as far as I understand. So, um, you know, we're, we're praying for people out there uh, and, and, and hopefully your clients will, will come out of it all right as well. But I just wanted to, to ask, because it's obviously, uh, you know, a huge, huge news story right now in a terrible situation. But I'm glad to hear that they're doing well. Oh, uh, thank you for asking. And I'll uh, relay that to people. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if people want to follow your work and, and follow the suits that you're filing, because you're not you're, you're not with like uh, any major gun rights group. You're just kind of doing this independently. Where, where can they find more from you? Uh, well, I have a business Facebook page. Um, you can just look uh, Attorney Allen Beck, and uh, that should pop right up uh, on the uh, on the Facebook. You know, I, I, I keep updates on. All right, uh, wonderful. Yeah. So I'm. Uh, um, well, yeah, you keep uh, up, well, keep people up to date on all this the cases that you're in with them. Yes, sir. And also, you can go on the Hawaii Firearms Coalition website. Uh, uh, that's a uh, very small state group that uh, I help um, with, and uh, they also put, do uh, a lot of updates with uh, what's going on specifically in Hawaii. Uh, my, my my page, I have, I have litigation elsewhere, so I also do that. But uh, And if you're a Hawaiian resident, I uh, very strongly suggest you, uh, um, A, add, start following the Hawaii Firearms Coalition page, and to consider becoming a member because we put uh, up uh, all sorts of um, information, especially during the legislative session. And, um, you know, we have this, how the bills get killed beforehand is, you know, average citizens show up. And uh, that means I don't have to get involved if uh, enough people show up to legislate. So, so especially if you uh, live in Hawaii, Hawaii Firearms Coalition. All right. Thank you, Alan. We're going to head over to the news update now. All right. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? Uh, I'm doing great, actually. Doing really good because, and let me tell you why. The Phillies are on a hot streak. Oh, but yeah. But not just that. Uh, we, we just picked up a pitcher at the deadline, right? Lorenzen. And he, his second game with the Phillies, his first game at Citizens Bank Park, he threw a no hitter. Yeah. And I watched that whole game and it's one of the most uh, amazing experiences in watching sports that I've ever had. So it was, a, uh, I wish I had been in the stadium, but it was basically just as good watching it from home. It's just so much fun. Um, you know, Philly sports uh, can really do a number on you you know, on your, your soul, uh, <laughs> long-term, but uh, it also goes the opposite way when, when they actually win. So, uh, oh, this is a, a Stoutland university shirt I'm wearing for those on YouTube. That's, uh, the, the coach of the offensive line for the, the Eagles. So, um, yeah, pretty happy. Then the, and the Eagles have their first preseason game this week too. So excited about that as well. Yeah. I'm not even a big baseball fan, but when I saw that someone threw a no, no, that's, it's pretty cool. You know, you know what else too? That game was crazy. First of all, it shouldn't have been a really good game for the Phillies. I mean, they were playing the Nats, who are bad, right? just playing bad. But uh, this was a game where they were resting a bunch of guys. They had they brought up a 
guy from like this, I think he's like 27 or 28 year old uh, minor league player. It was his first game. And, you know, they were playing a lot of their backups. And so you think, well, maybe they can pull it out because the Nats aren't very good, but you're not expecting some amazing thing. You know, Lorenzen had a great first game too. He only gave up two runs in eight innings. So uh, he was already paying off pretty well. But, um, you know, then you get first off the the very first at bat for that minor leaguer who came up. He hits a home run in his very first at bat in the major leagues. So that's amazing. Um, and then Castellanos hits two home runs. So he gets the 200 home run mark. And that was all uh, before <laughs> you started to notice that, oh, yeah, no one has gotten a hit yet. And we're in like the fifth, sixth innings. And he, but he had thrown a ton of pitches too. Uh, you know, I don't want to turn this into a baseball podcast or anything, but uh, in modern baseball, they don't let you just pitch nine innings anymore. Right. You, you know, people aren't going out there and throwing 130 pitches a game or, or whatever, like they used to way, way back. Um, and so he had, he had a couple walks and he had a couple long at bats early in that game. And he, you know, and he even said after the game, he was worried he was not going to make it very long in the game, but then, you know, turned around and got a couple quick, you know, innings in, they got a lot, he got a lot of good defensive help. Nothing like there weren't super crazy defensive plays that anybody had to make, but you know, it was a lot of fly balls to center field. Actually, I think our center fielder has only played 20 games in the league, had nine outs in that game. <laughs> so uh, you know, there was definitely a, a team effort in getting this no hitter, but yeah, you know, I, I was watching it, you know, while doing work and stuff. And uh, I got a stupid notification on my watch from the MLB. They're like, Hey, there's no hitter happening, which is like terrible luck. Jinx. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Lorenzo never came that. And, and now his cleats are going to be in the hall of fame. Uh, he was wearing Vans cleats, by the way, he's like a <laughs> California guy. And so he, his cleats are made by Vans. But yeah, it, it's been a good week so far. How about you? Yeah, no, no I don't have a, quite the same uplifting story <laughs> in Colorado sports. I watched the, yeah, Rockies, the Rockies lose like normal last night. So <laughs> I don't have the same high <laughs> that you're riding, but I'm happy for you that Philly has a, has had some good luck recently. So. Yeah, and I also scheduled the the next Homes for Our Troops charity shoot. Oh, yeah. So uh, we're doing two this summer because uh, the person who won two years ago wasn't able to, uh, you know, get their whole family, to everybody they wanted to come uh, together in the same time period. They got, like, adult children, so they want to uh, have a couple people come out. And But now we've got a date scheduled for it's the end of September. I'm looking forward to that one as well. Yeah, so, that'll be hopefully awesome. That'll be, yeah, hopefully it'll be as good as the previous ones. But yeah. what do we got in news? Yeah, we've actually had quite a quite the week in terms of especially court <laughs> rulings. Uh, so we'll kick it off with one that I wrote about uh, a federal judge out here in Colorado on the day that the law was set to take effect, issued a preliminary injunction on their recently passed ban on guns, all gun sales to adults under the age of 21. So he said that was likely unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Yeah, and that's continues a trend that we saw even before Bruin. You were seeing a lot of rulings just based off of Heller alone that were uh, coming down in favor of 18 to 20 year olds um, because there that's also an area that you know basically the law is kind of conflicted with public opinion in a lot of ways because people are moving increasingly towards wanting to ban 18 to 20 year olds from owning any kind of gun um, but you know the constitution has been getting in the way of that I guess or at least right. the federal judge's interpretation of the constitution has um, and, and so, yeah, we see that again here. I mean, this one of the more extreme versions uh, where you just can't own any guns, basically, right. even if 18 year olds or adults uh, often live on their own. But, um, you know, it's sort of a demographic thing, I think, in a lot of cases, because uh, the, a lot of 18 to 20 year olds, not a lot, but uh, not not in roll numbers, certainly the percentage of people who are that age bracket that commit crimes is still minuscule but it's a higher proportion than other age groups and but yeah obviously you get into a lot of problems when you look at people that way on the right. demographic scale and try to pass off the you know the bad acts of someone else onto another person because of their demographics right so. and that's 
that's kind of what went into this ruling here because Colorado attempted to kind of draw an analogy from historical dangerousness laws, for example, folks that wouldn't sign like loyalty pledges to, you know, to the country. And because 18 to 20 year olds are dangerous, that's an analogy. And the judge kind of to your point said, you know, that's way too broad. We, you can't say that just this entire class of people falls into some dangerousness uh, category. Um, so yeah, it just continues a trend that we've seen of, of almost exclusively up uh, striking down these bands, these age bands. So I think we've seen one in the 11th circuit and that's being reheard on bonk. So we'll even see if that yeah. holds up. The Florida, yeah. Florida band, right? Yeah, and, and obviously I think the other sort of glaring point is that uh, if you're looking at historical tradition of arms in the United States, uh, 18 to 20 year olds were included in the militia and basically yeah. every single militia act that was passed at the founding. And they were not only allowed to own guns, they were required to own guns so that they could show up and muster with them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the historical aspect is is super weak as well in, in these uh, trying to support these bands. So and just a quick, uh, we'll quick note on that. Just a fun fact: it, it didn't get raised in the lawsuit, I don't believe, but Colorado's mm. constitution specifically says men eighteen to forty five are in the state militia. So it's just funny that yeah. it even has their age right there. And and our state constitution. This was a federal case relying on the federal constitution, but it's just funny to to note that historically, yes, they were considered part of the militia and, and required to be armed in some cases. I mean, we. We st it's not even like historically, right? Because we still, it's not like yeah, true, you true. know, 18 year olds still serve in the military today. It's not some, uh, something we only did in the 18th century. This is, uh, this has gone through our entire history. So, uh, yeah, it's, you get pretty, uh, it gets pretty hard to see how these, these laws are going to withstand the kind of historical scrutiny required in Bruin and, and they're not right. right. I mean, I guess that's going outside of that one case that you mentioned. Right. Um, they, they really haven't with, withstood even, I mean, even before Bruin, like I said, yeah. so, uh, of course we'll keep on top of it because that just because something is, uh, protected by the constitution doesn't necessarily mean that people, uh, at large think it's, uh, or like it, right. I mean, this is, you right. see this really with all constitutional rights, <laughs> a lot of people want to, you know, they don't like the fourth amendments, various protections all the time and they don't. They don't like the First Amendment's various protections all the time. And it's, you're going to see sure. the same thing with the Second Amendment as well. Yeah, I think that's right. But uh, speaking of court rulings and uh, sort of another trend that we've started to see, this is a little more recent, but the Fifth Circuit has a new ruling out where they, in an as-applied challenge, struck down the federal prohibition on unlawful users of controlled substances. In this case, mm. it hinged on a, a marijuana, a person that was mm -hmm. admitted to smoking marijuana on occasion and also was in possession of firearms, and he was sentenced to four years in prison. The Fifth Circuit came down and said, you know, we're going to toss that conviction, we're going to toss that indictment, and that this is unconstitutional as applied in this case. So pretty big, pretty big deal. Yeah, and they were... They were pretty specific about it. their ruling being limited to just marijuana yep. users, but uh, but obviously the implication there uh, could go much further. Um, and uh, certainly, I think this is an area where uh, you have probably a lot more support than normal for undoing a gun law like this, because so many people now legally use marijuana, and uh, that if they even touch a gun, basically, you don't even have to own the gun, just possess it. That makes right. you a felon under federal law. And, uh, and the, you know, as, as this case demonstrates, right, they went through the historical record and there really isn't anything similar to our modern day lifetime ban on gun ownership for drug users. Right. Right. Yeah, there's a there's a pretty good tradition at the founding and then later during like the Civil War era of restrictions on using guns while actively intoxicated. Usually alcohol right. was the was sort of the laws. But there's nothing that says like, oh, if you use alcohol once, suddenly you can't own a gun, you know, a month yeah. later, a year later, five years later or whatever. And that's sort of what this came down to in this case is like, look, you can't just blanket ban someone for life because at some point they used a, a substance. And, and that's sort of how the, the U.S. government lost this case was on that. Right. And and it's very similar to what we had just talked about with Alan Beck on the, the main interview uh, with the carrying in restaurants uh, prohibition in Hawaii, because the yep. logic in that case was very similar to the logic in this case. Uh, the, the historical record was basically identical. And they came to essentially the same conclusion that 
historically, you, there were prohibitions on people, um, at least militia members, um, drinking while, while uh, being armed. Uh, you know, that wasn't allowed. But uh, so some sort of intoxication, really any kind of intoxication while carrying a gun or possessing a gun would be probably in line with the historical tradition. But going well beyond that to just anyone who's ever used marijuana uh, or, you know, uses it occasionally being, it's very, it would be just like saying anybody who gets drunk can't own a gun. Not, you know, and so that's where the courts seem to be coming down on a lot of these things now. Intoxication is the key more than just that somebody used at some point. Um, yeah, we'll see how that holds up when you get to harder drugs, I guess. Right. Maybe the courts will see a difference there. Uh, you know, maybe we'll get that uh, Hunter Biden case <laughs> since his plea deal got all messed up. We still don't have right. a resolution on that yet. Uh, you could absolutely see a U.S. v. Biden uh, Second Amendment case that's along these same lines. I mean, right. you talked about in that scenario how the, these charges are not brought very often as standalone charges, but clearly they do happen sometimes. That's what this case was, yep. right? Yep. This guy was not uh, convicted of anything else. And as far as I'm aware, he wasn't accused of anything else other yep. than just having weed and guns. Uh, at the same time, he wasn't accused of being high while possessing the guns, just right. that he had pre he admitted to using drugs. Usually that gets you out of charge. You know, usually they don't charge that stuff, but it does happen. And so that's where, you know, when people um, uh, you know, talk about the Hunter Biden situation. I think that's one of the things that sticks in their mind. Like This is not a common thing. It's not a common charge. But if it happens for this guy, why why not for the president's son? Right. right. It's the what you'll often hear. But, you know, at the same time, this precedent uh, really could help Hunter Biden if he does end up facing charges for this. Yeah, wouldn't that be quite the precedent? <laughs> I mean, that would be quite the news story at the very least. Sure. But yeah, so we'll keep an eye on that. And that uh, kind of brings us to our, our last story because we have a court ruling, limited as it may be, from the highest court in the land. The Supreme Court mm. finally made its decision in the ongoing saga over President Biden's ghost gun rule, where the Supreme Court gave deference to the DOJ and is going to allow that rule to be enforced while the litigation keeps going. Yeah, they issued a stay and they gave us a whole paragraph to work with on trying to <laughs> interpret their <laughs> what they're doing with this. Um, you know, basically, they, the order just says we're issuing the stay and that the stay is going to remain in place until not until the Fifth Circuit gets done with this case, which is interesting, but until the Supreme Court decides what they want to do with this case. Um you know, if the, the the stay says if they if they decide not to take the case, then the stay goes away. But, uh, you know, immediately. But, um, you know, there's a number of ways you can look at this one. I wrote a whole members piece on this. Right. Um, and, you know, you could look at it from a pro gun rights advocate point of view or a pro gun control advocate point of view. And you could come out with evidence for either side, I think, because, you know, here, here's the thing, right? We, we've talked about the Supreme Court and emergency interventions twice before in gun cases, right? And what did the court do then? Right. Yeah. And they, they decided to give deference to the lower courts and not intervene. Yes. And what did they do this time? Right. Now, all of a sudden, when DOJ comes calling, it's it's suddenly a little bit of a, a change in, in attitude from the high court. Mm -hmm. and, and they decide that actually we're going to get involved in what the lower court is doing and issue a stay. Right. Um, uh, of course, there's, there's another point on this end, which is that if you look at the stay, they also mentioned who didn't want to issue the stay, right? Yeah. And it was all conservative justices, right? right. Four of them. Four of them said no. It was Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Alito. They all, they all wanted to say no to the stay. So Roberts and Barrett are the ones who joined with the three liberals on the court to issue the stay. So that's a bad sign if you're a gun rights advocate, because this split the conservatives on the court and didn't split the liberals on the court. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so 
you know, maybe that says something. It also right. has the, the court going against the Fifth Circuit's determination that the stay wasn't necessary because blocking the rule actually reverted things back to the status quo because the, the rule was what changed the status quo in the first place. So that's something. Those are things to go off of. Of course, the other hand, you have a number of things to consider. First of all, it's not a Second Amendment case, right? This is uh, obviously it deals with gun policy, but it's the claims aren't Second Amendment claims, uh, at least not the ones that the courts have actually ruled on. Right. Uh, these this is administrative powers. Right. This is the Administrative Procedure Act is the key bit in this case. And so, you know, it's not actually a Second Amendment case. That's one thing to note. Uh, of course, the court has been equally skeptical, maybe even more so of administrative power, you know, executive branch power in recent years. So uh, I don't think that's any more fertile ground for people trying to defend the, the ghost gun ban, but, uh, but it is a key difference. And then of course, like you mentioned this, one of the big differences in my view is that the government was the one requesting the emergency action in this case, and they're requesting a stay instead of an injunction. Right. Uh, and so those are two different things. The previous gun cases, those were both plaintiffs requesting injunctions or requesting for a stay to be lifted in the New York case. And the court didn't want to get involved in blocking a law in that way, I guess. Um, and they're much more likely to default to procedurally to what the government wants to do. This is one of the reasons that you saw very few Second Amendment cases between, you know, Heller and McDonald and Bruin, because the government wasn't appealing any of the, those cases. They were winning all the ones that, at the lower courts. Right. And, and so, you know, the court could have taken, of course, they do take cases from non-government, uh, you know, uh, plaintiffs or defendants. And but they they're very deferential to taking cases from the government, especially the federal government. And so that's why you saw Rahimi happen almost immediately after Bruin, yep. because it deals with a federal law that's been blocked or struck down. And it was a request from <clears throat> the federal government. And so that's why you might see a, a greater pace of cases coming forward out of all this. But, yeah. you know, how, what does this all mean for the merits? Uh, I don't know. It's certainly not what gun rights advocates wanted to see happen, right? Clearly, um, but I, it's it's not something that it's like, oh well, they're obviously going to side with the government in this case, or even that they're obviously going to take this case up if it does. You know, once the Fifth Circuit does issue their ruling, right? Yeah, no, like like you said, it's it is an unusual thing that they state it even despite whatever the Fifth Circuit will eventually rule. But as you said, that's no guarantee that they're going to then come in and, and take the case. They could just say, uh we like what the Fifth Circuit did. We'll deny cert, and then that's sort of that. Uh, so it's sort of just kind of up in the air right now. We'll just kind of have to wait and see. And even if they did take it, I you know I wouldn't think that that necessarily means the government's going to win. Yeah, agreed uh, on the merits. Uh, I would still think they're more likely than not to rule against the ATF in this yeah. case. Um, but we'll have to obviously wait and see. They. You know, they, they could if, if those six justices that issued this stay wanted to say something about the merits or even hint at what they think on the merits, they could have done that. Uh, you you kind of saw this in <clears throat> how they handled the New York emergency application, right? The, yep. the plaintiffs in that case wanted the Second Circuit stay removed while the case was being heard. And the Supreme Court said no, uh, but Alito and Thomas wrote a uh, concurrence in that case that mentioned we're just doing this to you know let the procedure play out in the, this lower court, uh, but we kind of like the ruling, right? I mean they they compliment the ruling, go out of the way to say something about how they like the ruling against right. New York's law, and you know obviously that's just two justices, but it's you know it gives you perhaps some insight into at least the conservative wing of the court in that case, whereas in this one they didn't no, nobody said anything. Uh, and the conservatives who dissented didn't say anything either. So, you know, 
it's hard to read the court. You can't, these are all tea leaves, right? I don't want to get too far out over the skis here, but, but uh, you know, that, that their silence could say something that basically they're, if, the, if everyone was already decided on this, the merits of this case, which presumably they wouldn't do before they actually heard anything on it, but um, you might've seen a little bit more coming from the justices than, than you did. I mean, this, this may just be limited to a disagreement over, whether the stay should have been in place because uh, the fifth circuit not giving them one uh, is a bit unusual. I think sure. you often see the government get stays in these sorts of cases uh, while the litigation is ongoing. So, uh, you know, and the court might just be sort of established, you know, reestablishing the status quo as they view it. Um, but we'll have to watch and see exactly what happens. Uh, and you get, people can go ahead and read more. Uh, in our members, my members piece about this over at the reload. And if you don't have a membership, well, you can go and buy one and get access to that, uh, as well as access to this show a day early and the opportunity to be on the show. If you would like in a member segment, we'll have to do another one of those soon. Uh, it's one of my favorite segments that we do on the show. And <clears throat> of course, if you're not ready to make that jump and buy a membership, you can support us in all kinds of other ways. We are independent uh, publication here. We're not backed by any major corporation or billionaire donor or whatever. Uh, all of our funding comes directly from our members buying memberships. So uh, that that's uh, very important for us, but you can also support us by just signing up for the newsletter uh, that we send out for free on Friday mornings. Every Friday morning, we do not overload your news, <laughs> your inbox with just tons of news. We send you one email a week. And then if you're a member, you get a second special email, exclusive email on Sunday, uh, giving you a, a more thorough rundown of the the week's events, uh, more analysis of it. Um, but you can, of course, also help us by liking and sharing this podcast, giving us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Those are all super helpful things. But um, until next time, I'm going to let you guys go. Thank you.